Hi, everyone. This is Jim McCarty, welcoming you to LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode number 23. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And toward this end, has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, those of us at LL Research form a panel to consider questions from spiritual seekers. Our panel consists of Gary Bean, Director of LL Research, and Austin Bridges, Assistant Director of LL Research, along with myself, husband to the late Carla L. Ruckert, scribe for the Raw Contact, and President of LL Research, each of us a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. We will be discussing questions that are sent to us from spiritual seekers around the globe. Our replies to these questions are not final or authoritative. Instead, they're generally subjective interpretations stemming from our own studies and life experiences. We intend this podcast to be a platform of discussion as we consider questions that often challenge us to articulate our own perspective. We always ask each who listens to exercise his own discernment and listen for her own resonance in, term, in determining what is true. If you would like to submit a question for the show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Jim McCarty, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. Are we all here and ready to go? Mostly. Yes. <laughs> I am ready. All righty. Our first question is from Mary, our uh, excellent transcriber and question provider via email. Mm-hmm. Here's part of the raw material that I puzzle over. I would love to get the opinions of you three guys about this. Session number 18, question number two, raw response to Don stating that, quote, the proper role of the entity is in this density to experience all things desired, end quote. In the next paragraph, Ra adds, quote, we have found it inappropriate in the extreme to encourage the overcoming of any desire, except to suggest the imagination rather than the carrying out in the physical plane, as you call it, of those desires not consonant with the law of one, end quote. Then Ra gives a detailed explanation about why overcoming does not help. Fascinating stuff. How do you interpret this? And what are your thoughts, Gary? <laughs> um, my <clears throat> interpretation is uh, divided up into two parts. And in the first part, um, I would say that if I could ask Ra one thing about this question, I would ask them to elaborate on the word experience and the phrase experience all things desired. Does experience of desire mean indulgence in every desire? Does it mean to carry out every desire? Does it mean to put will and intention behind every desire in order to achieve maximum fulfillment of said desire? Unless, of course, as Ra said, the desire uh, results in an infringement upon another. Then just imagine it. And then what of mutually exclusive desires? For instance, say um, I have a desire to smoke cigarettes. Then say, I have another diametrically opposite desire not to smoke cigarettes. Uh, in this case, experiencing one desire necessarily means not experiencing the other desire. So as, as I am unable to ask Ra this question, uh, the best I can make of it is that the, the statement may be clarified by saying that it is the role of the entity within our density to bring awareness to every desire to explore every desire and, as Ra said, to experience every desire. 
not necessarily to carry out or indulge or energize every desire, but to meet the desire directly in your awareness, to observe it, to understand it, to unconditionally accept it, to recognize it as part of the self. And in many cases, the desire um, may be sufficiently strong and the momentum sufficiently great that it it does need to manifest in order for you to learn from it. You do need to experience the fruits of that desire and to allow the desire the opportunity to complete its life cycle. I think, however, that as awareness grows and will grows, that desire can be met directly within without needing to be carried out in order to be experienced. <clears throat> and um, on to my second part, why overcoming desire is unhelpful. Uh, this is, has always been a tricky one for me, but um, I would start by asking, what is the ultimate goal of desire? Or what is the highest use to which desire can be put? I think that in the evolutionary process, a great variety of desires emerge depending upon one's blockages and energy configurations, um, including desire for security, survival, recognition, enhancement of self, material things, gratification, distraction, sleep, pleasure, retribution, victimhood, justice, etc. Um, so... We continue working with our myriad and wayward, sometimes, desires, whatever they may be, with the goal being to refine and reach a pure distillation of desire. And um, pure desire in the integrated, balanced, and whole being may be described as a one-pointed desire to dedicate the entire being to seeking and serving the one. Where I actually said the original desire is that entities seek and become one. I think that's how it went. Uh, so I believe that overcoming desire is unhelpful, according to Ra, to this evolutionary process because it doesn't refine or purify the desire. It does not seek to understand, love, and integrate the desire. It does not seek to transform the base or lower desire into higher refined desire. Instead, overcoming rejects the desire as not being part of the self and attempts to replace a non-preferred desire with, as the self perceives it, a preferred desire. Um, I get the sense that in Ra's use of the word overcoming, that, that overcoming, <coughs> excuse me, I have a cold, which I would like to overcome, uh, that, that overcoming includes judgment and control in some way, of the desire. So in, Ra instead recommends a, a working with, in their words, an experiencing of all desires, and through the process of the positive polarity, um, desires, processes, rather, of the positive polarity, desires that are no longer needed fall away on their own, you might say. And my final thought is that suddenly or gradually you have awoken a deeper understanding of the self you have made deeper contact with the self and you are no longer in need of the lesson that the desire was offering so you subconsciously or consciously stop calling upon it and energizing the old desire it falls away like a layer of old skin being shed to reveal something more alive and vibrant and expressive of the actual self within I'm signing off on that one. Thank you, Mary.
Okay, Austin, Gary just gave a great response to that question. How about you? What did you got to say about it? That was an excellent response. I think that you did a better job of um, telling my own thoughts than I could, Gary. And I was hoping that you would because my flow was not on point today. So uh, the key points that I picked up from your answer, uh, one that I was going to talk about, was that this quote is sometimes used to sort of excuse indulgence in a way. And I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think that experiencing and indulging in desires are necessarily the same thing. And uh, I think that is a key point that you touched on in that uh, your own desire to smoke cigarettes, you could indulge in that and use this quote from Ra to say, well, you know, it's healthy because I'm not supposed to overcome this desire to smoke cigarettes. So I also would wonder what Rob necessarily means by um, experiencing, what they mean by desire, and what they mean by overcoming. Um, those would be great things to have clarified by Rob. But uh, one thing that I would point out in that quote that Mary gave us in the same passage, Ra said, all things are acceptable in the proper time for each entity and in experiencing and understanding and accepting and then sharing with other selves, the appropriate description shall be moving away from distortions of one kind to distortions of another, which may be more consonant with the law of one. So it seems to me that Ra is implying that um, no matter what desires we have and what desires we are choosing to experience, as long as we are engaged in the process of uh, catalyst and processing catalyst through understanding and accepting and then sharing, that there is a natural progression to desires which are more consonant with the law of one. And I don't think that this is just a simple act of experiencing what you desire. It is um, allowing yourself to experience the desire itself and then maybe experiencing what you are desiring. But then if you're not following up with that, with the uh, understanding, accepting and sharing and maybe contemplating and balancing these desires, then... I think that moves into a realm of indulgence, which I don't think is necessarily helpful uh, in a spiritual sense. I don't think indulging um, helps us on our path of evolution, and I think it can many times even hinder our path of evolution if we are simply indulging in a desire without any attempt to understand it, especially if it is a desire which seems to not be so consonant with the law of one. I also wonder if Ra may have been hinting more at experiencing the desire itself rather than experiencing what we are desiring. Uh, like you were talking about, Gary, it could be that Ra is simply asking us not to suppress our desires and not to repress them or ignore them or try to shuffle them away and deny them. But uh, acknowledging our desires doesn't mean we have to uh, follow through with them. As long as we acknowledge that they're there and we look at them without judgment, then I think the desire can, in a sense, be experienced um, without having to smoke that cigarette. Mm -hmm. Then uh, we are on that proper path of evolution and uh, without suppressing it. And I think a reason for not overcoming is also a psychological reason in that if we 
try to prematurely bury certain things, especially things like desires or uh, other things like trauma and stuff like that. They don't just go away. Uh, it's just that our conscious mind is no longer aware of them. They are then relegated to the unconscious mind, mm-hmm. and they still influence our um, our actions. They still influence our perspective, our mentalities. Uh, they influence our entire lives, and just because we are not conscious of them doesn't mean that we have somehow succeeded in getting rid of the desires. And so I think it's more appropriate to, instead of uh, bury these desires, to acknowledge them and attempt to understand them and uh, distill from them uh, an understanding, and then they will as Ross says, fall away eventually and our desires will sort of shift to those which may be more consonant with the law of one. So that's uh, what I think about that one. How do you feel about that, Jim? Well, I think that uh, Ross makes some interesting statements here that all things are acceptable. And you remember Ross said there are no mistakes. And that in another portion of the raw contact, it is said that we are 360 degree beings which means we include the light and the dark. So I'm assuming that at some point in our evolutionary process as third-density beings, that it is a part of the process to make choices that would be what we would call now uh, negatively oriented, that would be uh, perhaps infringing upon the free will of others. And that as we continue along our path, we discover that there is a need to balance those and to balance whatever we do, whatever it is that we desire, that we would need to balance so that eventually we would become a 360-degree being that had made a choice somewhere along the line in the 75,000-year cycles of third density to pursue one polarity or the other. In our case, we would hopefully be pursuing the positive polarity. But our history of evolution could include uh, many lifetimes in which we engaged in uh, behaviors that would be seen now uh, you know, as uh, murder or pillaging or controlling others. And... We would not want to do that now, but at some point it might have been a part of our evolutionary process. And that has always fascinated me that uh, we really are 360 degree beings and maybe we have traveled uh, a road that reflects that as we've found ourselves now at the end of this third density cycle and making choices that are more positively polarizing. So uh, I was wondering how each of you thought about that or what each of you thought about that. Gary, try you again. I I think uh, recognizing our 360 degree selfhood is really important because that's the positive path is the path of that, which is so you're, you're seeking to every new aspect that you face uh, um, that seems to be coming from yourself or from somebody else you're seeking to embrace and accept and integrate that as being part of the all self i mean you're attempting to um slowly disidentify from the individual self in order to realize the all self and like you're saying our evolutionary track um has probably had a great variety of desires including desires that involve um harming others but the only way that we're going to move upward along that evolutionary path is by accepting and integrating those and um back to tying into what uh or bringing in some of what austin said into my reply as well um i think it's really helpful too to acknowledge that by not 
by overcoming a desire, the desire is still there. It doesn't – the original desire that you attempted to overcome is still there. It's within your – like you're saying, Jim, your 360-degree selfhood. It hasn't gone anywhere else. So the goal is to <clears throat> integrate that back into the self and to transmute that desire, not to reject it or compartmentalize it off to um, the subconscious or, or somewhere else. <clears throat> Very good. Uh, how about you, Austin? Any final thoughts on this? Yeah, your talk about the 360-degree being makes me think of the work of Carl Jung. There's a couple years ago I did a little synthesis of Jung's work and the Law of One and tried to pinpoint how I thought their Jung's work was similar to the Law of One. And in that, I discovered Jung's concept of enantiodromia, um, which is very difficult word to pronounce, but it is relevant here. Uh, essentially, it's a, a term borrowed from the Greek language, which means running contrariwise. And in the context of Jung's theories, it uh, more especially means eventually everything turns into its opposite. And it's useful in psychoanalysis like Jung did uh, when it's realized that if an extreme one-sided stance exists in consciousness, the psyche will eventually sort of force a balance of this imbalanced position. It's uh, an example of Jung drawing upon the concept of the human psyche being a whole and complete thing, like you were talking about, the 360-degree being. It's something that Jung uh, fully believed in, that we contained the entire spectrum of human behavior and emotion. Uh, it's just that what we aren't conscious of is then in our unconscious. So a common example of an antiadromia that Jung might give is a midlife crisis where a person sort of breaks down after having lived their life in a very kind of one-sided way. Let's say like a mild-mannered person grew up really suppressing desires to be wild or to um, have fun or things like that. And then they get to their midlife and all of a sudden they have this break where they uh, go out and they buy a new fancy sports car, maybe have like an affair with their secretary or something. That's a really simplified example. But um, I think that it is similar to what we're talking about here. Um, when I uh, learned about antiadromia, this is exactly the quote that I thought about that Mary shared with us. Oh, fascinating. Okay, I think we've pretty well done that question in, unless there's any final thoughts. Nope, not for me. No, thanks. Okay, well, the next question is going to be along the same line, so uh, get ready for this one. Uh, from user, the tired philosopher, Via Bring Forth, I have a question regarding free will infringement in relation to a generic encounter of a type of traumatic occurrence. It is said that there are no mistakes, but I've read material in near-death experiences that suggest mistakes can happen in the literal format of not truly meaning to do such an action unconsciously, despite its occurring consciously. In a generic instance of, say, malevolent rape or murder, how could I possibly attempt to balance these events with compassion understanding? Is there a clear infringement of free will at a third density level that can be balanced? I guess I'm really just trying to find out if free will infringement is a serious occurrence that happens, or if no mistakes is just how it is. I ask, due to a large number of people who reject the entire spiritual systems they at first enjoyed when they come across the phrase, all is well, in relation to murder, rape, and torture, to name a few generic occurrences. Austin, what are your thoughts on this? I think no mistakes is just how it is, and you just need to get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Really, I think that uh, hidden in this topic is a question of semantics, specifically around the term mistake. Uh, for instance, despite the fact that Ross says there are no mistakes multiple times throughout the material, there were plenty of errors made in the material itself, simply in the transmission. And you could definitely define those things as, quote, mistakes. But even in Ra's own narrative, in their interaction with humans in the past, uh, they didn't go as planned. They had intended to teach a certain type of spiritual principle, intended to have a certain effect on the culture, and yet things didn't go as they had intended. Ra also talks about a couple of positive wanderers who incarnated on Venus when Ra was in third density in an attempt to bring some light to some of the other cultures on Venus, but they ended up polarizing negatively and becoming harvestable in the negative sense. And in that case, that plan went way off the rails. Hmm. Uh, Ra even talks about certain members of the Confederation and uses the word that they were mistaken in their attempts to aid, showing that there are kind of two variations to the word that we're working with, or maybe two perspectives on the idea of a mistake that we're working with. So with all the things that I just described, I think they could all be rightly described as mistakes. And I think that the situation that the tired philosopher is describing uh he's sort of seeing those he might describe those as mistakes as well and um so when it's said that there are no mistakes i think we have to assume that the term mistake is being viewed from a completely different perspective there the tired philosopher relates mistakes to infringements on free will so i think that i would work from that point um ross said at one point, when talking about mistakes, they said, free will does not mean that there will be no circumstances when calculations will be awry. This is so in all aspects of the life experience. Although there are no mistakes, there are surprises. <laughs> it seems to me that in talking about infringements on free will, the tired philosopher uh, views free will as an initial desire and then the ability to fulfill that desire without any hindrance. And an infringement is an interruption on that carrying out of the desire process. And I think this is similar to the perspective that might view all of those above scenarios as mistakes. So my perspective on free will is a perspective that is slightly different. And it is one that could probably subscribe to the idea that there are no mistakes. Uh, defining mistake as slightly different or viewing it in a different context. In my eyes, free will is not a principle in which the universe is obligated to deliver us whatever we desire, but rather it's an innate and inseparable birthright we have to choose what to do with what we are given. No matter what sort of outer circumstances are delivered to us by the universe, choice of our own mindset or our own perspective and how we will act will always be our own, at least so long as we have the will to see that that is always available to us, we will always have a choice on how to react and how to act and how to uh, view our circumstances. So if each circumstance is then seen as an opportunity for a deeper understanding of the self, a challenge to discover love and healing that can be found in any situation, and each individual may choose and have faith in the idea that deep within us is the potential to meet each of these situations and come out the other side more self-aware, more in tune with the loving heart of the creator and more aware of our ability to choose love, 
then how can any of those situations be seen as a mistake? Ra didn't like to use the term failure when they described their interactions with the Egyptians that didn't go as they intended. They used the term responsibility to then correct the distortions. And they also say that responsibilities are honors. Each honor is a responsibility, and each responsibility is an honor. And so through their quote-unquote mistake, they didn't necessarily fail. They are blessed with more lessons and more uh, opportunity to serve and an honor slash responsibility for sticking around and seeing things through to the end. So I think this is a perspective that I do feel is kind of larger than the one which might see things as mistakes is happening and uh, might not like the idea that there are no mistakes. And I don't feel like it should invalidate that other perspective at all. Uh, I think that we can work with both of them, but that larger perspective of there being no mistakes, I do think is available to us if we uh, look for it and have the will to see it. Oh, great job, Austin. Thank you. Gary, what is your perspective on this question? As um, very much in harmony with Austin's reply, I began my own by taking a somewhat semantic look at mistakes as well. And whereas Austin divided it into two categories, I did uh, likewise, feeling that is really um, depends upon one's level of perception in terms of what kind of meaning and application that the word mistake has. Um, Like Austin, I agree that uh, there is a realm of experience or a range of experience where a mistake is applicable and has meaning and makes sense to use. If you set your alarm or if you intend to wake up at 7 a.m. for a morning flight but set your alarm for 8 a.m., you've clearly made a mistake. Um, if you call your lover by the name of a past lover, you've made a very big <laughs> mistake. <laughs> and uh, for an example of a movie that consists of nothing but a series of horrible, awkward mistakes, see the first uh, Meet the Parents movies. <laughs> um, but that's that's one level of perception. The uh, the deeper or, or ultimate even level that where from whence Ra is perceiving is uh, that there are no mistakes. Uh, like Austin was saying, you're going to be blessed, quote unquote. Um, I mean, it's a true use of the word, but from our perspective, um, it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, you'll be blessed with, with catalyst. Um, whichever way you turn, your lessons will be there waiting for you. Um, Whatever your short-term destinations and wherever your meandering may take you, even if that includes um, infringing on the free will of others, your ultimate destination is never in doubt. We're all upon a course um, and we can choose our manner of travel and where we may go, but we're all headed to the same point. So we really, we can't, it's impossible in that regard to make a mistake. We could slow down or retard our progress or even, I don't know, bring it to a halt, but um, never indefinitely always um, are the end is inevitable. Um, which raises really interesting questions for the free will versus determinism question. But as to the second part of your question, um, balancing 
um, viewing horrendous acts with compassion. This is a, a recurring theme in the show and I think um, it's a recurring theme in the life of every seeker, especially anybody who's even halfway sensitive living on this planet and looking around them. They're constantly assaulted with this particular <clears throat> question. How do you love the unlovable? How do we relate to the uh, terrible things that happen here every day? Uh, and I can... Uh, um, patch over crude words on that attempt to describe the awareness within which you can feel compassion so long as it's recognized that they are crude words and this is really a state of awareness that uh, really results from disciplined work but um, <clears throat> those words involve pointing to the fact that you and the rapist or the murderer are one uh, the entity um who you likely abhor on some level or react negatively to, that entity is a representation, however grossly distorted that may be, of the same creator that you are. So regardless of what emotions we may experience or how badly our sense of justice is offended, um, the truth is the truth, and it is immutable. <clears throat> and with or without our consent, <laughs> the truth is truth. So how do you balance the crime? How do you bring compassion into... Uh, um, witnessing or knowledge of another crime. I suppose by consciously and intentionally seeing or at least seeking the truth. Uh, it's a process and it's activated by repeated intention and by analysis and self-examination. But I think a, a good bulk um, of that work happens in meditation itself. If you find out who you really are beyond name and form and the silence <clears> – <throat> And um, I think that transforms things. Uh, the outer roles and the costumes and the temporary identities will still be there, including the murder of the rapist. <clears throat> um, but you'll discover for yourself what's permanent and unchanging underneath. You'll see the actual true nature of the person who appears to be a murderer. Uh, that doesn't make you blind to their crime. They still did what they did as an entity and they bear responsibility for their action and society will mete out its justice upon that individual and karma will take effect upon that entity's life as uh, uh, Austin uh, and I sometimes say as jokingly as water is – as rain is wet. How does it go? As sure as water is as wet. As sure as water is wet. <laughs> karma will – will kick into gear for that entity. Um, but your deepened level of awareness that is a result of your own work will see the crime and all the associated catalyst and balancing and drama and all the phenomena of the manifest universe as just ripples upon the surface of the eternal life out of which everything arises. And um, compassion or universal love is, is the pathway back to that truth. So the more that you can engage in that or open yourself to that, the more you're recognizing and honoring and acknowledging and experiencing uh, what already <clears throat> is. Thank you, TTP, for your question. Okay. Um, well, I had a take on this that kind of harked back to the uh, quote I made last week from the first Raw session. And that's the one where Raw says, in truth, there is no right or wrong that eventually everything will be reconciled with the one creator, that what we're doing here is basically amusing ourselves by making these choices. And this amusement 
is choosing to partake in the evolutionary process. Um, we don't have to incarnate. I mean, most of us do because it's an exciting thought to be able to go out and to polarize in such a fashion that we give the Creator ways of knowing itself that it would not have had had we not exercised our free will within the veil of third density illusion. So we don't have to be doing this. In that regard, there is really no right or wrong. There really are no mistakes. What we are doing is uh, amusing ourselves for a reason. And we do it apparently in uh, spiritual families. If you uh, look at the material from Dr. Michael Newton or Dr. Uh, Brian Weiss or even Rob Schwartz, um, in the field of life between lives hypnotherapy, there's a lot of information about the spiritual families that we choose to incarnate with throughout most of our incarnational experiences, all through the densities, uh, beginning with third, up through the sixth and into the seventh. And each of us within this spiritual family, and they can be anywhere from five to 50 people, uh, we play different roles at different times for different reasons. And usually it's a balancing process. So that if we have in one incarnation uh, taken a life, or we've uh, raped somebody, or we've engaged in a life of... Um, persecuting uh, a daughter or a husband or a father or whatever, that when the incarnation is over, if that is seen as a, an imbalanced action that is not balancing another action of a similar nature, then we usually decide that we want to partake in a balancing action so that in the next incarnation we kind of trade places. So that eventually we do know what it's like to be on all sides of um, the coin or the 360-degree circle. So in that regard, that there is really no action that cannot be balanced. When we leave this incarnation, and the first thing we do is get together with our guides and perhaps some of our spiritual family and look back at the incarnation just completed, there is no judgment by any guide or the council of elders that we go before to do the same thing, to review the incarnation. There is never any judgment saying you did this wrong, you need to do this or that to, re, you know, to re make um, reparations. Uh, what there is, is a comment upon the effect and uh, when, what were your uh, choices here and how do you feel that they turned out. It's, there's very little, if any, type of uh, recrimination or um, any kind of judgment. There is simply a, a helpful investigation into the nature of the incarnation and what happened and what do you feel now would be the appropriate thing to do if there is any balancing necessary. So... Um, in that regard, I don't think there really is any right or wrong or any mistake. That it is basically our choice. Um, we are the creator, and we are working our way towards figuring that out here in third density. How to um, make that contact with the creator and to become all that there is so that the creator moves through us in a seamless and harmonious fashion, carrying out its will so that our will eventually gives over to the creator's will. Any final thoughts on this question? Looks like we're just about out of time. None for me. Thanks to Mary and TTP for the great questions. Yeah. Um, I have really, really quick thought to add. And just that this perspective that we're talking about is not a perspective that I would share with somebody who has recently experienced trauma no. yeah. and is attempting to come to terms with it. It's not something that I see that you can use to alleviate the pain somebody's feeling from some sort of immediate trauma. Um, it is something, it's a conclusion that has come to once certain pieces found. So it's not, I don't think that we're trying to excuse the bad things that happen. And 
sometimes say that people should just calm down if you've been hurt or something like that. Just wanted to uh, throw that in there. Oh, yeah, that's very important. Uh, when we make this choice that we want to follow the positive path, then we're engaged upon a path that sees uh, basically appropriate action and inappropriate action. And we very much want to travel the positive polarity. And when we leave this incarnation to see that we may have caused any type of injury to anybody, we are the first to say, I need to go back and make that right. That has to be balanced because that is the creator and I caused a problem there and I, I need to correct that problem. So yeah, that's very much true, Austin. That's, uh, there is no uh, excusing of any behavior. There is, there is the choices we make and uh, the way we keep those choices uh, pure and uh, of a high standard of excellence. Yeah, and there are many cases where you can read the perspectives of people who have gone through intense trauma and have come to this same conclusion that it uh, is not necessarily an excusable thing, but it is a life experience that has helped them grow and they've come out stronger having experienced it. All right. Uh, I think we're probably at our end. Final questions? Final comments? Nope. Not from me. Okay. Well, folks, you have been listening to LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thank you to those who submitted questions. If you'd like to send us a question for use before the next show, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast. We want you to know that we love you all. We hope you have a great week. Cheerio.